0: CHAPTER SEVENTEEN OF FOUR DAY PLANET BY H. BEAM PIPER THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN FOUR DAY PLANET CHAPTER SEVENTEEN TALLOW WAX FIRE Now that we were out of the traffic jam, I could poke along and use the camera myself. The wax was stacked in piles twenty feet high, which gave thirty feet of clear space above them but the section where they had been piled was badly cut up by walls, and full of small extra columns to support the weight of the pulp plant above and the carniculture vats on the level over that. However, the piles themselves weren't separated by any walls, and the fire could spread to the whole stock of wax. There were more men and vehicles on the job than room for them to work. I passed over the heads of the crowd around the edges and got onto a comparatively unobstructed side where I could watch and get views of the firefighters pulling down the big skins of wax and loading them onto contragravity skids to be hauled away. It still wasn't too hot to work unshielded, and they weren't anywhere near the burning stacks, but the fire seemed to be spreading rapidly. The dredger and the three shielded derricks hadn't gotten into action yet. I circled around clockwise, dodging over, under, and around the skids and lorries hauling wax out of danger. They were taking them into the section through which I had brought the jeep a few minutes before, and just dumping them on top of the piles of mineral nutrients. The operation seemed to be directed from an improvised headquarters in the area that had been cleared of ammunition. There were a couple of view-screens and a radio, operated by women. I saw one of the teachers I'd gone to school to a few years ago, and Joe Kivelson's wife, and Oscar Fujisawa's current girlfriend, and Sigurd Ngozori's secretary, and farther off there was an equally improvised coffee-and-sandwich stand. I grounded the jeep, and Morell and I got out and went over to the headquarters. Joe Kivelson seemed to be in charge. I have, I believe, indicated here and there that Joe isn't one of our mightier intellects. There are a lot of better heads, but Joe can be relied upon to keep his, no matter what is happening or how bad it gets. He was sitting on an empty box, his arm in a now filthy sling, and one of Mohandas Feinberg's crooked black cigars in his mouth. Usually Joe smokes a pipe, but a cigar's less bother for a temporarily one-armed man. Standing in front of him, like a schoolboy in front of the teacher, was Mayor Morton Hallstock. "'But, Joe, they simply won't!' His Honour was wailing. "'I did talk to Mr. Feishy. He says he knows this is an emergency, but there's a strict company directive against using the spaceport area for storage of anything but cargo that has either just come in or is being shipped out on the next ship.' "'What's all this about?' Morrell asked. "'Faishi, at the spaceport, won't let us store this wax in the spaceport area,' Joe said. "'We got to get it stored somewhere. We need a lot of floor space to spread this fire out on, once we get into it. We have to knock the burning wax cylinders apart and get them separated enough so that burning wax won't run from one to another.' "'Well, why can't we store it in the spaceport area?' Morell wanted to know. It's going out on the next ship. I'm consigning it to exotic organics, in Buenos Aires. He turned to Joe. Are those skins all marked to indicate who owns them? That's right. And any we gather up loose from busted skins, we can figure some way of settling how much anybody's entitled to from them. All right. Get me a car and run me to the spaceport. Call them and tell them I'm on the way." I'll talk to Feishy myself. Martha! Joe yelled to his wife. Car and driver! Quick! And then call the spaceport for me. Get Mr. Feishy or Mr. Mansour on screen. Inside two minutes, a car came in and picked Morrell up. By that time, Joe was talking to somebody at the spaceport. I called the paper, and told Dad that Morrell was buying the wax for his company as fast as it was being pulled off the fire— at 80 centisols a pound he said that would go out as a special bulletin right away then i talked to morton hallstock and this time he wasn't giving me any of the run-along sunny routine i told him rather hypocritically what a fine thing he'd done getting that equipment from hunter's hall i suspected i sounded as though i were mayor of port sandor and hallstock just 17 years old had done something the grown-ups thought was real smart for a kid. If so, he didn't seem to notice. Somebody connected with the press was being nice to him. I asked him where Steve Ravick was. "'Mr. Ravick is at Hunter's Hall,' he said. He thought it would be unwise to make a public appearance just now. "'Oh, brother, what an understatement! There seems to be a lot of public feeling against him.' Due to some misconception that he was responsible for what happened to Captain Kivelson's ship. Of course, that is absolutely false. Mr. Ravik had absolutely nothing to do with that. He wasn't anywhere near the javelin. Where's Al Devis? I asked. Who? I don't believe I know him. After Halstock got into his big black air limousine and took off, Joe Kivelson gave a short laugh. "'I could have told him where Al Devis is,' he said. "'No, I couldn't either,' he corrected himself. "'That's a religious question, and I don't discuss religion.' I shut off my radio in a hurry. "'Who got him?' I asked. Joe named a couple of men from one of the hunter-ships. "'Here's what happened. There were six men on guard here. They had a jeep with a seven-millimeter machine-gun.' About an hour ago, a lorry pulled in, with two men in boat clothes on it. They said that Pierre Caroli's corinne had just come in with a hold full of wax, and they were bringing it up from the docks, and where should they put it? Well, the men on guard believed that. Pierre'd gone off into the twilight zone after the hell-diver contacted us, and he could have gotten a monster in the meantime. Well, they told these fellows that there was more room over on the other side of the stacks, and the lorry went up above the stacks and started across, and when they were about the middle, one of the men in it threw out a thermoconcentrate bomb. The lorry took off right away. The only thing was that there were two men in the jeep, and one of them was at the machine gun. They lifted to follow the lorry over and show them where to put this wax, and as soon as the bomb went off, the man at the gun grabbed it and caught the lorry in his sights and let go. This fellow hadn't been covering for cutting up work for years for nothing. He got one burst right in the control cabin, and the lorry slammed into the next column foundation. After they called in an alarm on the fire the bomb had started, a couple of them went to see who'd been in the lorry. The two men in it were both dead, and one of them was Al Devis. "'Pity,' I said. "'I'd been looking forward to putting a recording of his confession on the air.' where is this lorry now?' Joe pointed toward the burning wax piles. "'Almost directly on the other side. We have a couple of men guarding it. The bodies are still in it. We don't want any tampering with it till it can be properly examined. We want to have the facts straight, in case Halstock tries to make trouble for the men who did the shooting.' I didn't know how he could. Under any kind of Federation law at all, a man killed committing a felony— and bombing an arson ought to qualify for that, is simply bought and paid for. His blood is on nobody's head but his own. Of course, a small matter like legality was always the least of Mort Halstock's worries. I'll go get some shots of it, I said, and then I snapped on my radio and called the story in. Dad had already gotten it, from Fire Alarm Center, but he hadn't heard that Devis was one of the deceased arsonists. Like me, he was very sorry to hear about it. Devis as Devis was no loss. But alive and talking, he'd have helped us pin both the wax fire and the bombing of the javelin on Steve Ravick. Then I went back and got in the jeep. They were beginning to get in closer to the middle of the stacks where the fire had been started. There was no chance of getting over the top of it, and on the right there were at least five hundred men and a hundred vehicles, all working like crazy to pull out unburned wax. Big manipulators were coming up and grabbing as many of the half-ton sausages as they could, and lurching away to dump them onto skids or into lorries, or just drop them on top of the bags of nutrients stacked beyond. Jeeps and cars would dart in, throw grapnels on the end of lines, and then pull away all the wax they could, and return to throw their grapnels again. As fast as they pulled the big skins down, men with hand-lifters, like the ones we had used at our camp to handle firewood, would pick them up and float them away. That seemed to be where the major effort was being made at present, and I could see lifter-skids coming in with big blower-fans on them. I knew what the strategy was now. They were going to pull the wax away to where it was burning on one side, and then set up the blowers, and blow the heat and smoke away on that side. That way, on the other side, more men could work closer to the fire, and in the long run they'd save more wax. I started around the wax piles to the left, clockwise, to avoid the activity on the other side, and before long I realized that I have done better not to have. There was a long wall, ceiling high, that stretched off uptown in the direction of the spaceport part of the support for the weight of the pulpwood plant on the level above, and piled against it was a lot of junk machinery of different kinds that had been hauled in here and dumped long ago and then forgotten. The wax was piled almost against this, and the heat and smoke forced me down. I looked at the junk pile and decided that I could get through it on foot, I had been keeping up a running narration into my radio, and I commented on all this salvageable metal lying in here forgotten, with our perennial metal shortages. Then I started picking my way through it, my portable audiovisual camera slung over my shoulder and a flashlight in my hand. My left hand, of course. It's never smart to carry a light in your right, unless you're left handed. The going wasn't too bad. Most of the time, I could get between things without climbing over them. I was going between a broken-down press from the lumber plant and a leaky five-hundred-gallon pressure cooker from the carniculture nutrient plant when I heard something moving behind me, and I was suddenly very glad that I hadn't let myself be talked into leaving my pistol behind. It was a thing the size of a ten-gallon keg, with a thick tail and flippers on which it crawled. And six tentacles like small elephants' trunks around a circular mouth filled with jagged teeth halfway down the throat. There are a dozen or so names for it, but mostly it is called a meat grinder. The things are always hungry and trying to eat anything that moves. The mere fact that I would be as poisonous to it as any of the local flora or fauna would be to me made no difference. This meat-grinder was no biochemist. It was coming straight for me, all its tentacles writhing. I had had my Sturberg out as soon as I'd heard the noise. I also remembered that my radio was on, and that I was supposed to comment on anything of interest that took place around me. "'There's a meat-grinder coming right for me,' I commented, in a voice not altogether steady, and I slammed three shots down its tooth-studded gullet." Then I scored my target, at the same time keeping out of the way of the tentacles. He began twitching a little. I fired again. The meat-grinder jerked slightly, and that was all. Now I'm going out and take a look at that lorry. I was certain now that the voice was shaky. The lorry, and Al Davis and his companion, had come to an end against one of the two hundred foot masonry and concrete foundations the columns rest on. It had hit about halfway up and folded almost like an accordion, sliding down to the floor. With one thing and another, there is a lot of violent death around Port Sandor. I don't like to look at the results. It's part of the job, however, and this time it wasn't a pleasant job at all. The two men who were guarding the wreck and contents were sitting on a couple of boxes, smoking and watching the firefighting operation. I took the partly empty clip out of my pistol and put in a full one on the way back, and kept my flashlight moving its circle of light ahead and on both sides of me. That was foolish, or at least unnecessary. Had there been one meat grinder in that junk pile, it was a safe bet there wasn't anything else." meat grinders aren't popular neighbors even for tread snails as i approached the carcass of the grinder i had shot i found a 10-foot length of steel rod and poked it a few times when it didn't even twitch i felt safe in walking past it i got back in the jeep and returned to where joe heibelson was keeping track of what was going on in five screens including one from a pickup on a lifter at the ceiling "'and shouting orders that were being re-shouted out of loudspeakers all over the place. "'The Odin dock and shipyard equipment had begun coming out. "'Lorries picking up the wax that had been dumped back from the fire, "'and wax that was being pulled off the piles, and material-handling equipment. "'They had a lot of small forklifters that were helping close to the fire. "'A lot of the wax was getting so soft that it was hard to handle,' and quite a few of the plastic skins had begun to split from the heat. Here and there I saw that outside piles had begun to burn at the bottom, from burning wax that had run out underneath. I had moved around to the right, and was getting views of the big claw derricks at work, picking the big sausages off the tops of piles, and while I was swinging the camera back and forth, I was trying to figure just how much wax there had been to start with. And how much was being saved? Each of those plastic covered cylinders was a thousand pounds. One of the claw derricks was picking up two or three of them at a grab. I was still figuring when shouts of alarm on my right drew my head around. There was an uprush of flame, and somebody began screaming. And I could see an ambulance moving toward the center of excitement, and firemen in asbestos suits converging on a run. One of the piles must have collapsed and somebody must have been splashed. I gave an involuntary shudder. Burning wax was hotter than melted lead, and it stuck to anything it touched, worse than napalm. I saw a man being dragged out of further danger, his clothes on fire, and asbestos suited firemen crowding around to tear the burning garments from him. Before I could get to where it had happened, though, they had him in the ambulance and were taking him away. I hoped they'd get him to the hospital before he died. Then more shouting started around at the right as a couple more piles began collapsing. I was able to get all of that, the wax sausages sliding forward, the men who had been working on foot running out of danger, the flames shooting up, and the gush of liquid fire from below. All three derricks moved in at once, and began grabbing wax cylinders away on either side of it. Then I saw Guido Feishi, the Odin Dock and Shipyard superintendent, and caught him in my camera, moving the jeep toward him. "'Mr. Feishi,' I called, "'give me a few seconds and say something.' He saw me and grinned. "'I just came out to see how much more could be saved,' he said. "'We have close to a thousand tons on the shipping floor, or out of danger here and on the way in.' and it looks as though you'll be able to save that much more. That'll be a million and a half souls we can be sure of, and a possible three million at the new price. And I want to take this occasion, on behalf of my company and of Terra Odin Space Lines, to welcome a new freight shipper." "'Well, that's wonderful news for everybody on Fenris,' I said, and added mentally, with a few exceptions." Then I asked if he'd heard who had gotten splashed. No, I know it happened. I passed the ambulance on the way out. I certainly hope they get to work on him in time. Then more wax started sliding off the piles, and more fire came running out at the bottom. Joe Kivelson's voice, out of the loudspeakers all around, was yelling, "'Everybody! Away from the front! Get the blowers in!' Start in on the other side! End of chapter 17